Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. My friend, it is time for you to sit back, throw on some headphones, or be in a peaceful place, and join in and listen to my conversation with my friend Hero Boga. She is a listener favorite. Lots of you guys love, love, love her. She's been on several times and there was a period of time she was a co-host with me and we did several shows together and I've invited Hero back because I've always loved talking with her. And for those of you that don't know who Hero is, she is an award-winning writer, a master teacher, and a mentor to visionary leaders who are shaping a world in which service and soul, prosperity, entrepreneurship, working hand in hand to create a world that serves all of life. And she's been doing this for over 40 years. She is a wise gem and she helps people reclaim joy and freedom and creative power and sovereignty in their businesses, their relationships, and their lives. And I just enjoy talking with her and I always feel so calm afterwards I may not understand everything that she says to me, but I think about it a lot and it penetrates me and it stays with me. And there's some things that she talked to me about 10 years ago that I'm finally starting to understand now in 2020. So I invite you, my friend, to sit back, relax as we listen to this conversation with my dear friend, Hero Boga. There will be links in the show notes so that you can connect with her as well via her social media or her website. I will circle back after my conversation with Hero, where we talk about all of ourselves, all of ourselves. We have all these different selves inside of us, and we're going to talk about that. Hero, my friend, hello and welcome back. Oh, thank you, Corinne. I'm so happy to be talking to you again. Thank you for inviting me. I am so thrilled. And you are such a listener favorite. And we've been rebroadcasting older shows on, we call it Wisdom Wednesdays. And one of your shows had come up, one of your interviews, and somebody was telling me, they're like, oh my gosh, that woman hero, she's so amazing. So yes, good to have you here. I get to talk to you live. And we're going to talk about standing with yourself. Wow. It's so interesting because you had emailed me a couple of weeks, about two or three weeks ago, Mm -hmm. um, and proposed that topic. And of course, as soon as you propose a topic like that, life has a way of (laughs) of plowing up out of the ground all of the rocks and (laughs) all of the pebbles that mitigate against standing with yourself so that question is on the table it's like how do we stand for ourselves and what does ourselves mean right Mm. because there are all these people in your country and in mine who are saying i will not wear a mask you know i'm standing Mm -hmm. for myself i will not socially distance i'm standing for myself i'll spit in your eye if you you know if you ask me to do something I don't want to do. So what does yourself mean? That's so interesting. Because when I think about standing with myself, I think about not abandoning myself. <laughs> because so often I would take on the blame or the shame and think, oh, I'm bad. And so I wouldn't stand with myself. I'd be against myself. And as I was sharing with you before we hit record, I lead a group called Be the Leader of Your Life, a program I created and I create these workbooks and I did the work ahead of time with my, before my group. And the theme that I saw was I wasn't standing with myself. I would abandon myself. I would do something and I would leave. And so I wasn't in alignment. So it wasn't all of me that was showing up. And when I say all of me, I mean all of me, like the great things about me and the not so great things Mm -hmm. about me. That's all of me, right? The mess of me. 
Yeah. And so that's why when I reached out to you, I was like, let's talk about this. I want to talk about standing with yourself. And then when now you talk about the mask and like, I'm going to stand for myself and I'm going to do this. I think of that differently. I think of that as it's me against the world. And I think about when I'm standing mm-hmm. with myself, it's me integrating so I can show up and be the best version and be of service to the world. Yeah. I think we're saying the same thing in slightly different ways, right? Because for me, I've been thinking a lot about what boundaries mean and what self means. And if I strip away for myself anyway, as I'm exploring this for myself, if I strip away all of the this is good and this is bad and this is right and this is wrong, then the question I'm left with is a self is not a singular creature, right? That within ourselves, we contain multitudes. So, for example, say we're having this conversation where we're talking about this topic, and if my inner three-year-old decides that this is just too scary to talk about and she doesn't know enough, to be able to talk with you about it in any intelligible form, she might collapse, she might inflate, she might come out with something completely inappropriate, or she might come out with something completely brilliant because three-year-olds can be brilliant, but she cannot contain or hold a coherent conversation about that. And yet that is a part of myself too. So just even from that internal point of view, which self shows up in which situation matters, right? Mm. And then if we take that one step further into who we are as interdependent beings, then our ecology is not just our internal ecology of selves that are every age we've ever been and every age we will ever be, but they also include everybody who makes us who we are. And so for me, that includes my kids, it includes my friends, it includes my clients, it includes the books I read and the authors I love and everything that shapes me and everything that is shaped by me. And the kind of standing up for that extended self is different than the standing up for an internal self. And yet it still requires the most potent, present form of my internal self to stand up for my community. Mm-hmm. And if I abandon myself, as you said, you know, if I'm not standing up for myself, then chances are it's not like we can't ever really abandon ourselves. I mean, what we can do is, you know, be in a meeting that requires our most powerful sovereign selves to show up and show up with our inner 12-year-old or our inner 22-year-old. Not that there's anything wrong with those inner selves. It's just that they, it's not their job to take that meeting. And yet they may often have had the experience of having to do things that they weren't mature enough or grown up enough to do. So we end up abandoning ourselves to our inner three-year-old or our inner 12-year-old or our inner 30-year-old. I'm 70, so... A long list of past selves that can show up in different situations. But if we don't stand with ourselves, we don't stand for those younger selves, leaving them to pick up the slack and to do a job that is ours to do and not theirs to do. And if we allow that to happen, then we also abandon our extended selves, our communal selves, our collective selves, right? What's the cost to us when we do that? The cost is really high. 
I don't know that I can articulate all of this because I'm right in the thick of it. You know how sometimes you, well, as I said, as soon as you brought this up, <laughs> all kinds of things occur. <laughs> I will tell you a little story from something that happened yesterday. I've been working for, I don't know, 50 odd years with the devas who are subtle energy beings that hold the patterns for the unfolding of all forms of life on this plane and in multidimensional planes. And I work with them in one way when I'm working with clients because there are devas, for example, of their businesses, which are much closer to our human energy field than, say, the deva of a galaxy or the deva of a universe or even the deva of a soul quality like love or sovereignty or compassion. So when I'm working with them, with clients, there's one way of working. When I'm working with them on collective healing, it's a completely different way of working. And when I'm working with them on collective healing, I don't initiate it necessarily. I will if, you know, there's something that I'm drawn to, some area of the world where there's something going on that I feel I can contribute to and I feel some connection with. But most often what will happen is I'll receive an invitation from one of the devas. And so a few weeks ago, I received an invitation from the Deva of Humanity, and it asked if I would be willing to work with it on a certain project that had to do with the men and women and children who were murdered in the Holocaust. And of course, I said yes. I mean, I always say yes unless my physical health won't permit it. But this time, I was asked to include what I can only call a human component to it. Because when I work on collective healing with the devas, I situate myself, I stand, when you're talking about standing your ground, I stand somewhere halfway between the incarnate human field and the devic field. And I have to do that to be able to communicate really clearly with them and to be able to maintain that level of communication. Now, you know, the reason devas ask me to work with them is not because I'm special in any way. It's because they cannot function in the physical world. Their realm is the subtle energy realm and they can't function in the physical world except in partnership with somebody or something that is already in incarnate form. Because there are things, that there are powers that we have as human beings and as incarnate beings that devas don't have. And there are powers that devas don't have that we don't have. So it's a complementary partnership. And that's why they asked me to work with them. But in order to work with devas and in order for devas to partner with us, it requires sovereignty, it requires power, and it requires embodying those at a capacity that has to be developed over time. It doesn't just happen. It happens when we're very young. I mean, it did for me when I was very young, because that's when I first connected with the devas. And there, at that age, partly we have a huge amount of life force. So we have an enormous amount of energy available to us. Partly, we haven't yet abandoned the selves that we arrived into this life with. You know, we haven't forgotten who we are. But as you go through school and all that socialization and all that cultural relation, you kind of lose that and you have to consciously develop that capacity. Devas can't work with you if you don't have that capacity because the differential between 
the vibration that they run and the vibration that we run as human beings is so big that it would fry your circuits if you weren't positioned in a place where you can handle that energy. It's a bit like plugging in, you know, 20 million volts into a 110 volt outlet. You'll <laughs> send fire to your house. So when I work with them on collective healing, I do it by myself. And this time I was asked to add this human piece, which as I kind of said, well, what does that mean? It was a ceremonial ritual piece anchored in the Jewish tradition. I'm not Jewish and I'm not a ceremonialist. So I invited my friend Taya, who is a Jewish priestess, has deep roots in her tradition, deep roots in her own community, and is, has been a leader in her community for many, many years. I asked her if she would be willing to be part of this process and if she would take on the ceremonial piece of it. She knows so much. So she proposed a date that was meaningful in that tradition. She invited members of her community, about 30 people from her community, each of whom would hold a different piece of the ceremony. So it was a braided, woven ceremony. And as we continued through like a period of about three or four weeks, kind of talking about and thinking about what this piece of work would mean and how it would play out, I invited Taya and my apprentice, Christine, to join me in the morning portion of it, which was my portion of the work with the Davis. Now, I've never done this before. And what I found was that in inviting them in to that work, as with any change, something is received and something has to be relinquished. And what I received was this incredible sense of support, which at my age, I'm finding now this work tires me out. You know, it takes a lot of power and a lot of energy to do. And my physical power is waning. It is diminishing. And even though my spiritual power increases, spiritual power has to be anchored in physical power. I don't mean that, you know, you have to be Atlas or the guy with the giant arms to have spiritual power, <laughs> but you do have to have a certain amount of life force available to you. Part of aging is a loss of life force, is the loss of that life force. So having them there was just, I started to cry. It was just this immense feeling of, oh my God, I don't have to do this all by myself. And then we started doing the work and I struggled to maintain the connection with the devas, which meant that I wasn't able to hear them as clearly. I'm saying here, but it's not like they speak in sentences. It's more like the way that we work together is they will invite me to experience and see and be part of whatever they're experiencing and seeing and being part of. And so they will show me, okay, here's what needs to happen. And it's partly them showing me, it's partly me using what I know. And it's, it's you know how in any kind of really intimate partnership, it becomes really difficult to sort out who's doing what, right? So it's like that. And I couldn't maintain it. And so I felt as though I was much less well, I don't know if much less, but I was definitely less effective in my piece of the work than I am when I'm doing it by myself. And yet it is a necessary shift for several reasons. You know, one, I don't know how much longer I can continue to do collective healing work by myself with the devas, which means that this, this shift is going to have to happen anyway. Two, 
I don't know how much longer I'll be able to do this work at all or how much longer I will still be on this planet. So it's really necessary. And because it takes time to develop the capacity to do the work, it's not that you can't do it. It's that you need to develop both the skills and the capacity to do it. Then if I don't include other people in it, somebody's going to have to reinvent that wheel. And it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. So part of my work now is to get really uncomfortable and to figure out what it's going to take to work collectively with the devas on collective healing. So standing, I don't know how we got, <laughs> forget <laughs> where we started with this, but standing for myself looked different than if I approached it in a linear fashion, standing for myself would be me saying, sorry, Taya, sorry, Christine, I need to do this piece of the work by myself, and we will meet for the ceremonial piece. But myself now, especially at this age, includes teachery. And both of these women are profoundly wise in their own ways, right? So it wasn't exactly teaching, but that standing for myself includes standing for my purpose, my soul's purpose at this stage of my life, which is to include other people and to let them develop their own capacity for working with the devas in this way. I mean, I've taught thousands of students over the last 40 years to work with devas, but because this piece of collective healing is so complex, I haven't really taught it to anybody else. And standing for myself yesterday looked like saying, come in. This is my purpose. This is my service at this stage of my life. And this is what I need to do. What I hadn't thought about was all the ways in which it would also benefit me as an individual, not as part of an interdependent Mm -hmm. community, but as an individual. And so that came about Well, in part, I just described, you know, what this exploration it's taking me on of how to make this shift for this next phase of my work and my life. But then we came into, you know, we did the work in the morning, had a break, and then came into the ceremonial piece, which Taya was leading with 30 other people. But because I didn't have to do anything other than show up, I did a couple of readings that she had asked me to do, and everybody else, it was like beads on a necklace. You know, each person contributed. They sang, they told stories, they recited prayers, they chanted. Each person came and contributed something that was so beautiful. And in order for them to do that, they had to truly stand for themselves, but they also had to stand for their community and for this work that we were doing together when they didn't know me at all. You know, they know Taya and they trust Taya and that's why they came into it. And I cried, Corinne, through the entire thing. I just... Luckily, I was muted because I was sobbing. <laughs> it was the ugly cry, like snot flying down my nose. My classes were completely fogged up. It was a good thing I didn't have to read anything after. <laughs> oh, I cried so hard. And part of it was just the weight of six million people murdered because of a certain way of being in the world. And then part of the work we had done in the morning didn't just have to do with the Holocaust victims. It also had to do with this pattern 
within humanity, within our species, mm-hmm. of hierarchies. You know, we were mm-hmm. talking about this before we started this recording. Mm-hmm. It had to do with this notion that there are people who are at the top of a hierarchy and then there are people who are below them. And everybody has their place in this hierarchy and the place is fixed. Or there is a myth that the place is fluid and you can actually rise through the hierarchy if you just work hard enough. But we're seeing the falsity of the illusion of that. And so much of human suffering and so much of planetary suffering. I mean, you know, when we suffer as a species, we have the capacity to make everybody suffer, to make every animal, the entire earth itself suffer. We don't just keep our suffering to ourselves. So this notion that we were working on in the morning was this notion of division and hierarchies. And the ceremony that Taya and her community created was built around, like her whole thing is the feminine traditions within the Jewish tradition. And I had not really been exposed to those before. I have a long history with the Deva of Judaism, but it's a Deva. So it shows me patterns. It shows me what it's trying to do. But I don't really get into the thick of what the tradition actually is. But it was the energetically, it was the most beautiful, powerful, exquisite thing. And what was exquisite to me about it, among many other things, was that each person in that circle of 30 people, each person who contributed did so with their full power, their full presence, their full creativity. It was so amazing to see. It was so amazing to witness. And it's probably why I cried through the whole thing, because when I left India, I left a whole tradition behind. And because my tradition is Zoroastrianism, which is dying, you know, there are fewer than 100,000 Zoroastrians left in the entire world. And there aren't enough in the community to maintain the infrastructure that preserves traditions. So there are no community centers, there are no fire temples, there are no social gatherings. There's nothing that holds that community together except in places like Bombay, where there are still enough clusters of my community to maintain that infrastructure. So part of it was experiencing that loss. And I hadn't, you know, I mean, it's not that I've never thought about it before, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of this. And it was part of the, what was bringing up all those tears as well. I received so much by letting go of what I had thought of as standing for myself. It invited me into a broader exploration about what oneself means because ourselves are not identities, they're functions, right? Ooh, say more about that. Ourselves well, are not identities, they are functions. Yeah, because who you are is the sum total of your thoughts, your feelings, your choices, and your actions, and your relationships with the world around you. So all of those are functional. They're not identities. And I think that's part of the problem here in in Western culture is that people are so, they conflate self with identity. It's part of why there is so much suffering here. Because if you conflate self with identity, then the minute you make a mistake, it's not a function. You haven't done something functional, which is what a mistake is. It becomes your identity. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yes. 
identity doesn't really exist. Identity is the notion that you are a fixed self. But none of us is a fixed self. We are constantly dissolving and becoming. Every moment who I was when we started this conversation is not who I am now. And that's because of this conversation. It's a function of this conversation. And it's also a function of our relationship. You know, we've been friends for long enough that we trust each other. Mm-hmm. And so we can have these wide ranging conversations because of that trust. And that changes who I was when we began talking just now. And I expect it has changed who you were as we've been talking. But even if you think in purely physical terms, cells are dying off, breaths are leaving, breaths are entering, blood is flowing and dissolving and becoming. There's always this process of dissolving and becoming. And if we try to freeze that process and fix it and say, this is who I am, then anything that mitigates against that fixed identity becomes a problem. Whereas if you think in terms of functions, you don't have to be so attached. I need more of that. (laughs) (laughs) Can we circle back to the full power, the full presence? Mm -hmm. What's that like to be around that kind of energy of full power and full presence? Taya had organized all this ahead of time because she didn't have to tell anybody when they, people just stepped in and then stepped out. This was all on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And she started it off with a chant and a prayer and a song. And then she asked me to do my reading because I'm the only Dumkoff there who wasn't (laughs) wasn't organized to tell me. I read my piece. And then each person stepped in and gave their offering. And first of all, just energetically, they were so vibrant. Like the presence comes across a Zoom screen. A presence comes across over audio right now. I feel your presence. I'm really aware of it. But also because they were chanting, they were offering prayers, but these were all things they had created. They were traditional prayers in between that Taya kind of led. But much of what they did, they created. And they did it full voice and full power and full strength. So they were, you know, drumming. They drummed with everything they had. If they were singing, they sang full voice. There was nothing held back. And what struck me about it was how much trust there was in that circle, in that community. And how trust and that sense of truly being anchored in a community and a tradition that loves you and holds you is such an essential piece of being able to step forward with your power and your presence. I love that idea of stepping forward. And that's what I've definitely been leaning into this summer is... Mm -hmm stepping forward into that power and that essence. And it's so interesting. Like I was sharing with you before we got on for this interview of, you know, as I stood with myself today and had to speak truth to power, I could do it in a way where I was clear and direct and patient. And Ooh, I think that might've been it too, hero. I was uh-huh. patient, right? Standing with myself. Cause when I abandoned myself, it's always like, I don't know if this is going to work. So I better go. <laughs> and, right. And 
rush through. Because patience, patience comes from power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Patience is knowing that however long it takes, you will get to where you want to go. I didn't realize that, but that's exactly. And so I just stood with myself. And again, yesterday was more of a hot mess. So yesterday, by the end of the day, partly I think so energetically drained. I've had a lot mm-hmm. of energy out this week because I did a large training and dealing with all these other issues. And so by the end of last night, you know, it was nobody likes me. I'm too difficult. <laughs> identity right (laughs) you're the unlikable one (laughs) yes Yes. and the whole you know pity party and I abandoned myself and then this morning going through my process and reconnecting with myself and crying like the beauty of crying and letting all that just come out it created a space for me energetically when I cried and I had some time this morning and, and especially there hasn't been much time this week, much alone this summer, but I did have some space and some time and I gathered myself. And then when that moment appeared where there was speaking truth to power, I was able to do it and really be in my full power. So when we had gotten on, I was maybe, I don't know if you could feel it, but I just, felt very strong and vibrant and I could hear it in your voice I could hear it in your voice it was like your voice went half an octave down from where it normally is (laughs) (laughs) they're all wishing we hit record but but we didn't (laughs) I had to call a timeout on hero I was like we got a timeout we have to get this stuff on no, it it was absolutely true. And the interesting thing, you know, as you were telling me that story, Corinne, was how you use different aspects of your power in different ways as needed. Again, it's power is a function. It's a soul quality, but when we use it, it's a function, right? When you were talking about it, when you stood in your power and you were clear and direct. Mm-hmm. in your encounter with this person, you used the power of logic and data because that's the power that that person could understand. That's the only power that person could understand. And then you let yourself cry afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that's the power that your body understands. The power of saying, I hold you. You just did something that was scary and freaky, and I am holding you, and I am letting you release whatever came up through that process. And that also increases your power. So you used both kinds of power. There are many kinds of power, but you used two different kinds of power. Oh, Hero, thank you. I am going to, I've written that down. That is a new story I'm going to adopt. I am holding you and letting you release. Oh, what a way to reframe the story I've had most of my life. Because there was a time that, you know, I thought crying was weakness and women are told, you know, you shouldn't be too emotional and you shouldn't cry. My mom, when I was 12, told me I should only cry at her funeral. So but this idea. Wow, of, really? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I talked about this when I interviewed Jen Loudon, but when I was about 11 years old, so my mom is Korean and she's a war refugee and very strong and capable and tough. And that's her mm. armor. And mm. I, I don't remember what I was crying about, but I just remember her saying, save those tears for my funeral. It's like, that is not allowed here. We are going to carry forward. Mm. And so I've so struggled. And this is, I think, another way of like abandoning myself is not allowing myself that space to cry. Mm. And that's why I love and I'm going to adopt what you said is I'm holding you and letting you release because I do think of it as this flow and it's this so much and during COVID I've cried actually quite a bit and I've shared this on the show. It's been this like letting go 
of all the stuff that I've been collecting inside of me and letting it flow out. But I love this idea that it's holding me. Yeah, because part of standing up for ourselves, for our very private selves, not not our public selves, but our very private selves, is really making a safe place for everything that we're feeling, everything that we're thinking, everything we're exploring, for all of that to arise and fall away, which it naturally will when you give it room to flow, right? Mm-hmm. And even this morning when I was crying, it came out and it didn't last that long. Like I couldn't even tell you if it lasted two minutes, mm-hmm. but it came out and I've gotten into the practice of letting it just come. And of course, I'm not going to yeah. do that on a show or with a client. And this is a space that I have the capacity to do that. But I've learned through practice is that I can cry and it's not going to be an all day event. No, it's not. I mean, that's the nature of feelings is they become and they dissolve and they become and they dissolve. Mm-hmm. Same with thoughts, same mm-hmm. with us, you know. It's part of our becoming and dissolving. It's only when we artificially freeze them, often by telling stories about them. Like if you had told yourself a story about, well, I'm not supposed to cry except at my mother's funeral. Stop this right now. Mm-hmm. Or a story that if I start crying, I'll never stop. Or a story that if I cry, I'm a girl, which of course you are. All of those stop the feeling. They interrupt the feeling. And when that flow is interrupted, it goes underground. It doesn't go away. It doesn't dissolve and become. It's artificially held like a little toxic reservoir, right? And so we have these pockets of undigested feeling and undigested thoughts and undigested actions that we hold in our bodies. And tears are such a simple way to release them. I love that idea. I'm going to steal that of pockets, these undigested right? Because that actually makes so much sense with my tears this morning. And it was something that just came out. And so I love that idea. So thank you for sharing with me that concept, because I'd never thought of it in that way. I, you know, after all these years, I did not know until now that your mother was Korean. That is a whole nother topic we could be talking about. (laughs) I know. <laughs> I have questions. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll need to do another show because I would be happy to talk with you about it. There's a lot that I have to process with that. And I spent a part of my life hiding that part of my race, or at least thinking I was hiding that part of my race. Yes. No. So I'm half Korean. So well, maybe. Korea, there's such a historically colonial relationship between the U.S. and, and Korea, right? So does this mean you'll come back and we'll talk again about this? Oh, I'll come back and talk with you anytime. And I'll talk with you off the air anytime, too. (laughs) Oh, that'd be so great. (laughs) So great. Yeah. Okay, my friend. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been so delightful to hear you, hear you speak, to feel you, to hear your laughter and the joy. What a beautiful way to end this week and this month (laughs) (laughs) honestly this week and this month i keep thinking this is the tale of the dragon but but the tale goes on and on and on yeah 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 oh thank you corinne i'm grateful for you i'm grateful for your presence in my life i'm grateful for your friendship and i'm also grateful for all these incredible interviews that you've been doing for what 11 years now since 2006 so where are we 2020 14 years october be 14 years isn't that crazy wow yes yes wow oh well thank you be well and let's talk again soon okay thank you my friend oh 
that was definitely what I needed today. Oh my gosh. The irony, it's the thing I talk about sometimes with my clients is that life has these synchronicities, these synchronous moments. And I used to be a person who would try to plan and control and micromanage and make it all happen. And I believe that I could just make it happen. And what I've learned is I've softened and allowed things to flow is there can be this synchronicity. And so as Hero described, we'd been talking a few weeks about what to have for this show and actually rescheduled this interview. And it's so interesting because while I said last night I was a hot mess, I was actually still a hot mess this morning and did my work and cleansing and so on and so forth. And then was able to really stand with myself in my own power. And then to be able to share that experience with Hero when we came on before we did the show. And I was sharing with her about how, even though I've done all this work, and I think this is a really important concept for you all is, but I've done this work that we always have work to do, or it's those little pockets like Hero was talking about. So even though I've done all this work is that as I become braver and more clear and more in pursuit of what I believe is important, it takes energy. It takes a lot of courage and it takes me standing with myself instead of abandoning myself, putting all these different parts of me over here and over there and over here and bringing all parts of me so that I can show up. I appreciate Hero sharing about, and I'm probably need more work to do. No, not probably. I need more work to do about this idea of ourselves as identities and their actually functions, right? And getting out of the identities and getting into the functions. And I think that's higher level work for me to work on. But I want to circle back to this not abandoning ourselves, right? And sometimes one of the things we do when we abandon ourselves, we abandon ourselves for the greater good or for other people's desires. So you go against what may be important to you to get along. And that could have easily happened today. I was asked (laughs) several times to accept the current status and I spoke truth to power. And I said, but here is the process and it's your process. And there's a disconnect when you say this is the process. And now you say, accept what you've been given. And I was only able to do that because I stood with myself instead of abandoning myself to then allow their desire of the issue to no longer be an issue for them to have the permission that what they did was okay, even if it was against their own process. That's another example of standing with yourself and standing in your power. And really, you know, there's a concept that Hero used and and we didn't actually get to it today, but it's this idea of this thinking heart. And I love that concept of here's my heart and my heart is so powerful and I allow it to think because it has information for me. And if I can lead with my heart and connect with my brain, I'm so much more powerful in my life. And when I'm talking about power, I'm not talking about powering over. I'm not talking about bullying or demanding or taking people down. I'm talking about rising up and standing tall. And of course, I'm not perfect, you all. (laughs) There is the, I'm going to take them down. I'm going to power over. Who do they think they are? There's all of that that goes on. But that was within those moments and it doesn't feel very good. And it is me abandoning myself because there's a cost to me to be doing that. So instead, going back to my thinking heart, going back to my sovereignty, going back to standing with myself and standing with myself instead of against myself, instead of beating myself up, being so critical, you know, the self-talk that we have is so important. I did this training this week with an organization that is very hierarchical based. And it was so interesting because these are, you know, leaders and the self-talk was so harsh. They didn't think they were good enough. They didn't think they had the imposter syndrome, that that was not the term that they used, worried about getting fired, worried about how they're going to lead, you know, that they were doing it wrong and they were going to be found out, right? These are always the same common stories and these are high achievers. And the self-talk of like, oh, well, I'm just so lame. I'm, you know, that's standing against yourself and standing with yourself. Standing with yourself is, hmm, I'm sitting in this room with other people who've been promoted 
and it's vulnerable because I have the story that I shouldn't be here, but let me check into that. Is that really true? Right? How is this showing up for me? What are these thoughts that are showing up? Is it really true? Like, could they've really made a mistake in bringing me here? And if they did, here's the other alternative. Even if they did make a mistake, I'm here now. So what can I do so that I can really contribute to this position that I'm in? And what a different way. Notice how like I could even feel it inside of me, that shift of what can I do to contribute to this position that I'm in? That, my friend, is standing with yourself. We want to stand with ourselves instead of against ourselves. So on this day, I'm smiling big for you. And I hope that you stand with yourself And on the times that you abandon yourself, you go back and you bring her or him or they back to you. Hey there, before we go, I have a question for you. Have you subscribed to the show yet? This is an awesome opportunity for you to preserve your brain juice. I love the fact that I can subscribe to podcasts in television shows, and they go straight to my iPhone, or they go straight to my DVR, and then I don't have to worry of, oh no, especially with television shows. Did I hit record? Is it going to be there? Or now do I have to watch it on demand and go through all the commercials? So go and hit the subscribe button. There's a link in the show notes, and that will ensure you that you never miss a show. And you can also save your brain juice for other things in your life. There's way more important things. But you and I will still be connected because the show will be waiting for you in your phone. Go to the link in the show notes, subscribe to the show so you can automatically get all the shows to your phone. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.